This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love telling stories of songs. And you're about to hear a great story about an amazing song, Gimme Shelter, which you're listening to right now and was recorded in 1969. And on this day in history, an important vocal track was laid down that made this song this song. But let's take a listen to more of Mick Jagger. And in 1969, this was the lead song off the Rolling Stones record, Let It Bleed. And the vocal track we're going to talk to you about is from a background singer, Mary Clayton. And it's a remarkable background track. And we're going to tell you the story of that track. As we often do here on Our American Stories, we tell you stories of songs and how they came to be. And you hear from the songwriters or the singers or the musicians themselves. A little bit about Gimme Shelter, by the way, because Martin Scorsese, one of our favorite directors here on the show, used the song three times in his soundtracks, in Goodfellas, in Casinos, in The Departed, in the movies themselves too, not just the soundtracks. And oddly enough, not in his documentary of the film that he did on the Rolling Stones, a live concert performance at the Beacon Theater in New York, which Scorsese filmed, and it's called Shine a Light. Let's take a listen to Martin Scorsese and his affection for this song and this band. I guess I can say that in many ways, whatever I I do with movies and in movies began with listening to the Rolling Stones and the way that their music interacted with the world that was around me. Their songs sort of sparked sensations and images that stayed with me and that grew and changed. And that's why I wound up putting so many of their songs into my pictures over the years. In fact, my films would be unthinkable, really, without them. Mick Jagger recently said, uh, Shine a Light was the first movie I made that does not have Gimme Shelter in it. But believe me, it wasn't for lack of trying. And it, and it wasn't, I'm sure. They just didn't play it. A Rolling Stone writer said of Gimme Shelter, by the way, the band has never done anything better. And I think that's true. So let's move ahead now to the, to the backup singer, Mary Clayton. The song was originally recorded out at Olympic Studios in London in 1969, but the Stones were stuck. And they were in a studio in Los Angeles. And, well, the song needed something more. And a singer got called. A local girl living in L.A., Mary Clayton. And let's take the story from there. What a great studio. Boy, did we have some time in this studio. It was like very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant. Had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Mary. It's a group of guys in town called Rolling, the Rolling Somebodies, and they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, (laughs) a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on my head. We said, it would be wonderful if a woman sang this part about that I'd written about rape, murder, and all this. It was in the middle of the night, and and, then we thought, we would love to have a woman sing this part. I didn't know her, and from Adam. Then she turned up in her curlers, she was in bed, and she got out of bed. And, you know, it was a kind of 
raunchy part to sing. I said, what? Great murder. It's just a shot away. I started to sing, oh, children, it's a shot away, it's a shot away, with Mick. She sings the lyrics right along me and with a lot of personality, which is what was needed. What I liked was that she could sing. She was able to be merry. She didn't have to bring it down. They said, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. I mean, she just did it like a couple of times, you know. So I said to myself, mm-hmm, I'm going to do another one. I'm going to blow them out of this room. <laughs> I went in again, and I did that pass on the, uh, the part that says, uh, Ray Murdoch, just a shot away. So I had to go up another octave. at sort of two in the morning and then you come in the next day and you go, bloody hell, that's good. Yeah. I don't hear a hand clap. <laughs> and the hair is standing on our arms here. Amazing, astounding. By the way, that clip came from a movie, 20 Feet from Stardom, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary in 2014 and featured the stories and lives of background and backup singers Darlene Love, Judith Hill, Lisa Fisher, and of course, you just heard it, Mary Clayton. And so on this day in history, in Los Angeles, in silk pajamas, curlers, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf, this woman who Rolling Stones lead singer Mick Jagger didn't know from Adam. Well, she said it. I'm going to blow them out of this room. She did. On this day in history, Mary Clayton runs down and lays down one of the great vocal tracks in rock and roll history. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything 
here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. And send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll get them up on the air. We love to hear from you. And your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And today we wanted to talk about, well, an issue of the day. And every once in a while we talk about issues and we don't talk about politics here. And there's no screaming and yelling. And that's why you've come to like what we do. But sometimes there are stories percolating and we look at polls and we look at what people are talking about. And the recurrent top two or health care and, and education. And these are the things that we worry about for our families and worry about, well, we just worry about, period. And drug pricing came to the top very high in the last polling that we were looking at. And so we decided to send our intrepid producers out into the field to talk to the American people about drug pricing. And again, we're not here to, to talk about politics and what the solutions are. But we certainly want anyone who's listening to know we at least know what some of the recurrent and real problems are with our listeners. And so what we found were three types of categories of folks, uh, the kind of folks who could afford the price of drugs and could just write that check. And because of family resources, it wasn't a big deal. Well, it was a big deal, but they could afford it. Then there were folks, and I think this is the majority of folks, struggling month to month to save up enough to put a little bit of money in a 401k, a little bit of money in a college savings plan, and just enough to maybe go to Disney or have a little bit of money to take a family vacation. And I think that's the vast majority of you listening. And then, of course, there are people really struggling day to day. I mean day to day to put food on the table. And we got to talk to all three of those types of folks. The first is Pete. He could afford it. The second is Courtney. She was struggling and but could make the payments thanks to good insurance and last but not least well the last lady she wouldn't give us her name Uh, she didn't want to she was too embarrassed about the situation she was in and well her story it just about broke our hearts let's take it away and let's hear from pete first Uh, you know for for prostate health i take a five milligram cialis every day and it cost me $230 for 30 days. The insurance company gave me eight pills for free, but they won't give me 30. So, you know, or eight pills for my $15, you know, you know that I pay for a prescription for a brand name prescription, but they won't give me the, the whole month. I'm lucky that I can afford it. 99% of the people out there had, you know, not 99%, but a lot of people can't afford that. You know, my, my wife has MS, her medication's nine, uh, was it $9,000 a month? And if she, you know, had to, you know, didn't have any kind of assistance through the MS Society and stuff, it would kill us. We pay about 3000 for hers a month, you know, just, just for her MS medications. So it's, it's tough. It's tough, and it's hard. And he said he could afford it, folks. Now let's listen to Courtney and her story. I have a specific dog in the fight when it comes to drug prices, and that is the fact that when I was 15, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. When you get diagnosed with type 1, the reason is because your body has killed off the insulin-making cells in your, uh, in your pancreas. And everyone needs insulin to produce energy from the food they eat to fuel your body. If you don't have insulin for a couple months, you will, you'll die. Um, you'll go into a diabetic coma and you'll, you'll die. So for the rest of my life, I will always need insulin. And specifically with insulin, 
I, I'm, I know that the price of insulin has increased and that it, there's not even a for sure reason why. From 2002 to 2013, about the past year, or past 10 years or past 15 years, insulin prices tripled without like a real, a real reason for that. And insulin is a, was discovered 100 years ago. So we're talking about a 100-year-old medication that has no generic and is produced exclusively by three big pharma companies. They control all the insulin production in the world. And so, so specifically, you know, I'm very lucky I have health insurance, I have good health insurance. So when I go to get my insulin every month, I pay $35 as you know, I do with most medications. But on the bag, it will tell you what your insurance saved you for that prescription. And instead of saying something like your insurance saved you $50 or whatever, it says your insurance saved you, I really can't remember the number, but it's over $1,000. So, you know, my monthly insulin intake, which is not, uh, it's pretty small because I'm a small person. A lot of people need a lot more insulin than me. My insulin intake over a month without insurance would cost me over $1,000. It is a medication that is life support for people who have type 1 diabetes. There's also a horrible phenomenon of people who um, ration insulin because they are at a point where they have a finite amount of insulin they maybe don't have the ability to pay for anymore and so instead of taking the amount of insulin they're supposed to take they take half that amount or they try to you know make a, a vial of insulin last longer and so what ends up happening is these people go into ketoacidosis and they end up in the hospital or they end up in a coma so it's particularly <laughs> I don't want to use the word enraging but it can be enraging at sometimes because uh, you kind of feel like if you work and you have good insurance that, or even if you don't have good insurance, things should be accessible that are, that are needed literally for you to continue living. And now our last story, and this is that woman who did not want to give us her last name. She was too embarrassed about her situation to give it. And she and her husband were in a Kroger parking lot, actually going in to get a medication for the husband that the wife gave to him because he needed to take it immediately. And they had obviously just about scraped up enough money to get him this medication. And again, she wouldn't give us her last name, but we're all, we're all, we were all moved by this last story. Price of drugs, it can be up to a hundred some dollars, depending on, you know, if it's, if you don't have an insurance, it could be up to that. And then if you do, you still have to pay up a little bit and then sometimes if you go to the doctor, copay is still gonna be like $20. And if you don't, it's gonna be up there. So it's like, do I stay at home and try to deal with it? Or try to just end up on a payment plan and then get end up in the debt because you may not have the money all the time. And they don't know your issues and it's like they don't, they don't care, you know. And so, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just, it's hard. And so there you have it. And now let's, let's take a listen to the person who was put in charge of this polling. And you probably know his name. You've seen him on Today Show and, and MSNBC and CNN and Fox News. I mean, he's just one of those pollsters that everyone knows. And uh, Frank Luntz has this to share about some of his findings. Well, they don't understand why the pharmaceutical companies can make the profits that they're making 
and charge the, and the words that they use, the obscene prices for these life-saving medications. That what good is all this awesome American science, American ingenuity, American research and development? What good is it if you cannot afford it? Where is the hope if you're struggling that you actually do have to choose between the cost of your medications and living your life? So that's number one. Number two is it really angers people, and I'm cleaning up the language here, the idea that they have to pay two or three times more what a Canadian pays or what a Brit or a French or German person pays because of our ridiculous drug pricing. And third, it ticks them off when they watch all of these ads, these ridiculous 60-second ads, and I have to be careful because I know that they, they run on your favorite programs and often on your radio shows, but it doesn't make consumers happy when they're paying two or three times what foreigners pay and they're watching these ads that they know cost a significant amount of money and, and they've got all these side effects and they're kind of frightening and badly produced. The ads, the lobbying, yeah. the high prices, it, it is actually after uh, how much people take home in their pay, it is the number two most important issue facing America today. And there you have it, and what storytelling, folks. And this is just one in a series of stories we'll be doing about the price of drugs and also the price of education and the cost and how it just keeps going up and up. And we're going to be talking to you and continuing to talk to you about things that matter to you. Three stories here on Our American Stories about drug pricing, but in the end, three that represent so many more here on Our American Stories. Thanks for listening. To send us your drug and healthcare stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter, so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. And this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, arts, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. Amy. 
People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to basically like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species. Uh, In this case, my gorgeous little dog, Dixie Lou. So I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals. And uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French. And so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, The thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment. But the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, But it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of. And it was Moore Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, And this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally too. Um, So if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to the school. So this, like, (laughs) actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I 
remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book and uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book and I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots and they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking the next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do, and when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him, and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys, and, you know, no drama, and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training. For the New York Times, for their Modern Love section, I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. 
I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo sapien Lee Habib needs similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But, you know, some people were sort of bothered by it, and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was bloody bloody blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that, yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person it made me um, a more self. I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of one. I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. 
I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about you know what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species and uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night does it like to sleep during the day does it uh, does it like cold weather does it like hot weather I thought about that with the people in my life like what were the behaviors about them that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not you know thinking of other things while he's doing you know the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally this does not mean we don't have feelings but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy because people have some of these behaviors really wired in and also in addition to that you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you so I learned to take things less personally so for example uh, in the train in the animal training world uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, 
highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you gotta be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think there's a a movement in this country. I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence. And the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So... Uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching and it's basically being it's it's using the clicker with humans um, and it's use they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines to help people improve their golf swings to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. 
And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there, or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company, Flexingate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad, for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart was he ever wondering whether he just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks, I mean, I have that to this day <laughs> where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that. But, uh, and... If, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And 
then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So, so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride, but this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, you know, in the 70s, when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally, I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning, uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you, and I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop of all places in Urbana uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything uh, uh, weld, grind, and you know, I was able to get the job. At the blacksmith he worked for, They designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea... The owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies. And they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, And except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. you got to remember, I mean, this in the 78... GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53 and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's Story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country, making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. 
He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show, from American history to the arts to sports, and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business, and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country, all of it. You can hear, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up, to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter, and go to iTunes. And type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself. Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known con men in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, you know what kind of criminal we're talking about. From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states. And I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. While the film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source. Especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious con men to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal. I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. 
His parents were getting a divorce. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon, asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said family court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response. But eventually, the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench, so I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again. So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? At 16. How far did you go in high school? At 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet. By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work on the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often, I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there. The checks were good. But it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk, and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. 
Now, years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it. I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over. I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Now, yes, ma'am. I'd like to... Um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. And the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, maybe you can help me. My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry cleaned. Now the hotel and the cleaner say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen, with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. So no problem, I'll write you a check. No, um, <laughs> we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll, um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance, comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> when we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with the fake ID. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of the real-life Frank Abagnale, as told by Frank himself. He successfully performed Consworth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor. And now we return to his story. Here's Jesse. Logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy. I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. Started to call around and finally one company said, Listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit and the sales rep opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am, Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a 5 by 7 glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name. And in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one do you. And I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now, we don't just sell these cards. We sell the system, camera, laminator. Oh, we have to buy all this? Absolutely. But tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, have a seat right here. Took my picture and I the car. Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18... I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? So one of the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening, like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump seat, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle. 
scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5. I go down the Parma House Hilton walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID. They'd give me a key. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check. Actually, a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air Grand. It would take me a good eight hours, stopping at every counter and every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again. Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check. He was inevitably caught. Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I had forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the warrant and Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmo, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released. That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day. This year I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday I fly up to Washington, about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40-plus years and my three sons. And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in 
far Bombay Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away And what a story. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories. Your stories, too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up there. Register with us. Give us some details. We'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may hear angels cheer, cause we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied This is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Frank Abagnale who was played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over $350 million, or six times more than the $52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around L.A., but quite a few in New York, Montreal, and as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse. In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures, he doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort. And unlike how he might be perceived by his fans is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth. As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film, but we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. 
I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally every week on HBO and TV, and then become a Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently, every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, and they feel compelled to write. And, of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life and will until my death. The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted. That I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now, the world is... The world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy. Loved his children more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the mirror I researched Frank's youth. Now, without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you, I love you very much. He never ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps. He was 6'4". He played semi-pro football for Buffalo, but my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make. So I ran. While Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 
10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room? Because you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs in New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories. I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. Forty-plus years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me. But the truth is, God gave me a wife. She gave me three beautiful children, she gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes. The last thing you think about, the last thing you worry about are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give him a hug, you give him a kiss, you tell him you love him while you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life 
than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. <laughs> Thank you. And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night, never missed a night. Frank remembers, I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course, talking about family, which we do so much of here on this show, he thanks God first, he thanks his wife second, and the family, and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce, you're hearing or thinking about this story, as you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is Our American Stories. Frank Abagnale's story... In a way, his entire family's story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do.